Uh, I was here last month. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Jason. I am one of the pastors here at Central, um, and I have the privilege and or crushing duty to follow Chalom. So we'll uh, say thank you later. Um, so um, we're, we're in a series called um, the, the Greatest Story, um, and we're looking at kind of four movements that work throughout uh, Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, um, and we are uh, looking at the fall today. Now, th- there was a point in time in my life when I, I didn't quite know what to do with this book. And so um, I would find myself knowing that I needed to read God's word, but wasn't sure how to or what to do. So a lot of times what ended up happening is I'd kind of do this and then read whatever came and would go, uh, okay, cool. I don't know what to do with that, but I've done my duty, right? I read the word of God. I understood it. Good. God, I have no idea why that is the case. One of those stories happened to be in 2 Kings chapter 19 and 20 about King Hezekiah. This, this king who kind of um, uh, has a, is, is from a long line of kind of dysfunctional kings. And, and he comes into power and uh, he's kind of faced with a circumstance in where the Assyrian army is coming to, to take over the city. And so he doesn't know what to do. And he's got, he's got Isaiah, the, the prophet Isaiah there with him and, and reassuring him. And so Hezekiah comes to God um, with, with, with this faith <laughs> that, that Shalom talked about. Right? Saying, no, 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 I know a God who can serve or, or who, who can do miracles. And so I'm going to approach him and we're going to see what happens. We're surrounded. We're stuck here. I'm going to see what happens. And, and this, this amazing miracle happens is that overnight, God slays 185,000 Assyrians to free Hezekiah. And you think, that, that's, that's amazing. What, what in the world happened here? Like, how could this possibly be? And you'd think from that, that place that then Hezekiah would be absolutely 100% convinced that God is trustworthy. Except we find out at the end of his life that Hezekiah trusts his wealth, the gold that he has, his own influence, and abandons essentially the God who saved him for money. And I, and I read that and went, how does that fit in this Bible? I mean, it makes sense for me. I, I, I totally understand Hezekiah, but how, like, how does this make sense? And, and if, we, if we're honest, even if we methodically read through the Bible, we come to some incredibly challenging stories. And we think, how does that fit? We did a series on Abraham, and we looked at Sodom and Gomorrah, and we think, well, how does that fit? Or if you look through Judges, and you see this fat king 
who gets slayed by a left-handed judge who's hiding a sword on the inside of his right thigh. And they just have this weird uh, descriptor of that the whole sword would go in. You're like, what? Why? why is this here? And we come questioning. But, but the thing is, is that we need to understand the story of the Bible to understand how these things fit, right? Context matters. When I was first learning to drive a boat, um, my mom was very concerned. Uh, my grandfather had a cabin and he had a fishing boat, and so there was some very strict rules. My dad was a little bit less um, worried, so he would just like, just go, it's fine, you, you, it's fine. My mom was like, no, 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 that's not how we do this. You can go, but you can only go for where I can see you. So my mom doing her thing at the cabin, reading a book, looks up, and there she sees me and my brothers floating out in the middle of the, of the lake, not past the point. We were good, we were good boys, at least on this occasion. Um, but the, the motor is up, and we're all gathered around it. One of us is actually hanging off the end, trying to see something underneath, and my mom loses it. My, all of my boys are in trouble. It's over. What's going on? I, like, she is screaming from the end of the dock. All that happened was my brother was silly and forgot to keep his rod pointing out that way. And so slowly but surely, the line got caught in the prop. And there we were trying to save our very precious lure. But from my mom's perspective, her boys were dying. Right? Context matters. And this series is intended to kind of give us context for the grand story of what God is doing. And then we can place in it all of these strange and wonderful things that God does in the Old and New Testament. So, so today we're going to look at the fall and we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, 14 through 19 primarily. And then we're going to skip ahead a little bit more. So if you could turn in your Bibles there, it's in the first couple of pages. But just to get us up to speed, last, last week we looked at what creation was about. And we had two glorious chapters of God creating out of nothing, bringing order and perfection and beauty and usefulness to the world. And he doesn't stop there. He then creates humanity in his own image so that they could have dominion over it and have perfect relationship with God. They live in this idyllic space where they, they have uncontested, unfiltered access to God himself. They can walk in the cool of the day with the Lord of the universe. And they can eat from any tree that they want, save one. And life is good. There is perfect harmony with Adam and his wife, Eve. They have everything they could ever want. Sadly, though, it is shortly short-lived. If you've read the Bible at all, you're, you're aware of Genesis chapter 3 in where Satan, in the form of a serpent, comes to Adam and Eve and says to them, did God really say that that tree is bad? 
are, are you sure? And Eve says, well, yes, we, we can eat from anything except that tree. Because if we do, we'll, di- we'll die. Satan says, no, no, no. See, what it is is that God's keeping something from you. If you eat from that, you will be like God. And Eve, hearing and listening to the voice of Satan, takes the fruit and eats of it. And then passes it to her husband, who also does. Adam, there, having seen God and seen the goodness of God when he was alone to bring a partner that would be good, knowing that God is for him, that God would do anything for him, that would would create a partner that was suitable for him, takes this fruit and sits silently while the devil deceives Eve and in so doing deceives him as well. And immediately, immediately everything changes. From, from this point forward, all of a sudden they recognize their, their nakedness and they need to cover themselves from one another. So they, they fashion these fig leaves and then, and then when they hear God coming, at, at which would have been a very positive and beautiful experience, now, now, now they find themselves hiding from him. Instead of embracing a God who gives good gifts, they're hiding from him because they have broken trust. And God comes and says, Adam, what's going on? And Adam's first, first response, she made me do it. Like, this is, this is my experience with my kids, right? I hear a ruckus downstairs. I go downstairs and Lincoln's like, I don't know what happened. Beckett did something. Well, of course the four-year-old's at fault, right? The first thing that Adam does, the first thing that Adam does is say, she did it. And you gave her to me. It's not me. You gave her to me, and now she made me do it. This is terrible. Everything is broken. Relationship is broken. Harmony is broken. Walk with God is broken. Everything is broken. And then God responds in verse 14. And he says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I, sh- I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust 
you are, or for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Everything is broken. To Eve, to Eve, God says, here's the curse, is that you, you will bring forth children in childbearing. And having seen my wife give birth to three children, I know that that's true. But it's more than that. It's more than simply the physical reality of birth. It's, it's, it's the pains of infertility. It's the pains of miscarriage. A child that's born or that is stillborn or that does not get to be born. It is the pain of sudden infant death syndrome. It's the, it's the pain of not seeing our children grow up. It's the pain of seeing our children wander away from the truth of God. The bearing of children will be painful. The joy of being fruitful and multiplying and subduing the earth is now ruined, tainted, difficult, full of anguish. But not only that, there is relational pain. We've already seen this with Adam blaming Eve immediately. But, but the, the reality is, is that now there is a discord between husband and wife and there's a power struggle one over the other to subdue or subvert. Relationship is tainted. And to Adam, he says, now work will be toil. What was joy-filled and productive will now be begrudging and sometimes fruitless. You will sweat and gain nothing for it. Ever been there? Long day of work and you look back, go, I got nothing done. Nothing. But worse than that, now death comes in. Adam and Eve were intended to be eternal beings in relationship with God. But now their days will be numbered and disease will take over. And their body will fail and to dust they will return. But these are just the consequences of the curse. These are the results of the fall. The real tragedy is actually in verse 23 and 24. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove them out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
This is the real curse, is that God himself is now unaccessible. Life is unaccessible. Pain and toil and relational discord define life because God is at arm's reach. There is a barrier between man and God. We spend a lot of time trying to mitigate the consequences of the curse. Prolong life, reduce suffering, helicopter parent our children, make sure we eat right, exercise right, vacation right, to take everything out of this life. And yet the real problem is, is that God is distant. But this story continues throughout the Old Testament. It is not simply a Genesis chapter 3 kind of reality and now we move forward in, in, in some sort of new reality. The, 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 the story of fallen man continues. Immediately, the next chapter, we have Cain and Abel, the, the sons of, of Adam and Eve who, who dis, are in dispute and Cain kills Abel. And has innocent blood on his hands. And then it, it escalates and that Lamech comes and kills somebody j just because. And, and, and the, the ball of sin and fallenness just rolls down the hill until at one point in time, God looks down and just says, there, there, is, there is absolute debauchery in the entire world. And I can only find one man righteous. So here's the plan. I'm, I'm going to reset. I'm going to reset and take this one righteous man. I'm going to kill everybody else and we're going to start over. And isn't that what we do? Life, life is difficult and hard and, and man, there's just so much sin. If I can just reset, maybe that's the solution. We just need to remove everything and start over. And when, when, God, when God does this, Noah, Noah is, is an obedient guy. Like we, we need to understand here that God asked him to do something crazy by build a boat and wait for some animals to come. Like, and and he, is, he is obedient to God. He hears God's voice. He listens to God. He builds this boat. And sure enough, the floods come and wipe out everything on the earth. And we expect, yes, this righteous man, this man of God who listens to him and obeys him at his word will be the true start. And then land comes and God makes a covenant with him in Genesis chapter nine, verse one, it says, and God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Do you, do you hear the, the echo from Genesis chapter two? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And Noah promptly gets drunk. And his son mocks him. 
And when he wakes up the next morning, he curses his son. And so starts the cycle again. And it continues where people try to be like God and create an Eden like God. And God thwarts them. And the cycle continues with sin, pride, and selfishness, and violence. So then God says, okay, okay, I, I, will, I will call out a man and I will make a people for myself so that, they, so that the world around can see what a godly people should look like. And so he calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, 1 and 2. He says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. This is a man who again heard God and moved from his comfortable space with wealth and prosperity to a land that he was uncertain of because God said so. And when famine God comes, he says, ah, I don't know if I trust God, I'm going down to Egypt. When he gets to Egypt, he runs into a problem because he's got a, a good-looking wife, and so he lies and says, you know what, this is my sister, and allows his wife to go into Pharaoh's harem. Really godly. He doesn't just do that one time, he does that two times. We're thinking, okay, God, how does this work? But his son after him, Isaac, was a liar. His grandson, Jacob, was a liar and a manipulator. He takes advantage of his brother to gain the birthright by simply providing soup when he was hungry, taking advantage of Esau in such a way that he could get what he wanted. And then he lies to his father to get the blessing that was due the older son. Jacob's children were liars. And they had murderous intentions. Jealous of their younger brother, they sought to kill him, but instead sent him to slavery. God's people are looking really great. But maybe the problem is that Noah and Abraham didn't know what was good and right. Maybe what they needed was something that would tell them what God desired and wanted. Not just simply a be fruitful and multiply, not just have dominion over the earth, but an itemized list of do's and don'ts. If we just had the right laws, that, that would do the trick. And so in Exodus chapter 19, after Moses has delivered the people miraculously from the hands of, of Pharaoh in, in Egypt and brought them across the Red Sea and done unthinkable miracles, they stand at the mountain of Sinai and look up and are afraid to come close to it because the presence of God is so heavy that they, that they, they are fearful. And so in Moses, in, in Exodus chapter 19, 5 to 6, says, Now therefore, 
Or God says to Moses, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then he goes and gives the Ten Commandments, the law. Love God. Keep the Sabbath. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't murder. Now, surely there is no excuse. And yet, and yet, Moses comes down the mountain to find the people serving a golden calf. And they go to the land of Egypt or to the land that was supposed to be given to them, Canaan. And they look at that and say, no, God can't do that. And they have doubt in their heart. When they finally do take the land over time after time after time, they look at the gods around them and they take them upon themselves. And then, and then God sends a judge to help them, guide them, deliver them. And then they say, thank you, God. And then back to those gods. The law did not help. But maybe the reality is, is what we need is a leader. Someone who trusts God, who knows God, who has actually the very heart of God in him. And if we could just have him above us and keeping us accountable and showing us the way and doing what's right, then, then, then we could do what's right, right? Then we would follow the law of God and we would trust him properly because we'd have someone to look up to. So enter David, a man after God's own heart, where in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 to 13 says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We think, yes, David. Yes, David. Except David sins. He sees a man or a, a woman whose husband is at war, takes advantage of the situation and commits adultery so much for the law. Then he hides it by killing the man. His son Solomon, although he built the temple and has this great moment of asking for wisdom instead of wealth or power, at the end of his life has hundreds of concubines and wives from other nations and worships other gods. Rehoboam, his son, causes a civil war to break out and splits the nation of Israel Joash, one of the subsequent kings, rebuilds God's temple, this glorious thing, but killed God's prophets. Hezekiah prayed and received God's deliverance, but turned to the idol of money. You see, the, the entire Old Testament points to one truth and that is that we are fallen and that it's not about restarting 
It's not about knowing the laws of God. It's not about having a godly leader. Everything that is in us, everything that was in the people of God was rebellious and prideful and so easily swayed to things that are so temporary. That's why Paul in Romans 3, 10 to 18 outlines the, our need so spectacularly. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I read that and I think that's me. What I see in the Old Testament is character after character representing me. That when God has done the miraculous, I have turned to the temporary. When God has re revealed himself to me in the way that I should go, I act in rebellion. When he calls for faith, I respond in doubt. And it's so fallen. I don't know about you, but it's so easy for me to make excuses for why it is that I don't do what I ought to do or trust as I ought to trust. So easy for me to blame the leader, to look at my circumstances, to blame my wife. Oh, I, you know, I'm so sorry I failed there, but you just don't understand Ashley. That, like that, that, it's so easy to do, isn't it? So easy to hide our laziness and to cover our brokenness. See, one of the major themes of the Old Testament is that we are fallen. That the sin of Adam is not only exclusive to him, but goes generation to generation for all of history because we are broken. And I wish, wish, I wish we could finish, but we have to wait for redemption. But here's the thing, 
We have this beautiful God who doesn't just who doesn't just pronounce curse or give promise and then crush. No, 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 no. In every one of his promises, in every one of even his curses, he points to a greater truth. In Genesis chapter 14, when he curses the serpent, he says, he says you will bruise her heel, but this, her seed will crush your head. Pointing forward in hope. See, the, the covenant of Abraham is that he will make a people of all nations, not just one nation. So we can start to ask the question, where, where, where is that going to come from? Where is this hope going to come from? Where is this all nations gathering together going to come from? And when, when he says to David that your throne will be forever, you got to say, well, how is that possible? Because it's a finite name. How is it possible that David's throne could last forever? You see, our gracious God doesn't leave us in our fallenness and doesn't leave us in our sin and, and the mire of our life, but, but he whispers, there is hope. I have not abandoned you. You have rebelled against me, but I will make it right. And we're left at the end of the Old Testament going, how is this all going to work out? But we can come to God and repent of our sins because he has promised that he is faithful and that he will do it. So it's no surprise that John the Baptist, when he comes to fulfill the words of Isaiah, makes straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And he says, repent. God is at work. And so as people, as fallen people who struggle daily with our sin and can so easily find in the characters of this book our own sin and propensity to walk away from God, we can find hope. And it's a beautiful thing that we get to celebrate communion today. Because that hope came in the person of Jesus. And he was the greater Noah, the greater Abraham, the greater Moses, the greater David. And he has promised a future and a hope for us. And we, as those who follow him, who believe him, can have hope. And we can remind ourselves of the goodness of his gift. That his body was broken for the, for, for the sins that I committed. Not that he committed, but that I committed. That his blood was shed to satiate the wrath of God so that my blood does not have to be shed. And we can stand in the presence of 
God himself, with him near in our hearts, in our lives, whispering to us, guiding us and leading us and strengthening us for the mission that he's sent us on. And so we get to celebrate that with communion. That we are not fallen, but redeemed. That we are not broken, but sons and daughters of the king. So I just, I would invite those who are um, serving communion, if you could come up, that would be fantastic. We, we do this simply to, um, we, we do this to remember what it is that God has done. There's nothing special about the the symbols. They're just symbols, but it's a way in which we can reflect in our hearts what God has done through Jesus. We can take his body and we can drink from the cup as he outlined, as he did with the disciples. We can remember what it is that God has done. And so I invite you that if you, if you, if you love Jesus, if you trust him with the brokenness in your own heart, with the fallenness in your own heart, Come, partake, enjoy knowing that God is with you, that he loves you and he has restored you. Let's pray before we do so. Father, I'm so grateful for this, uh, for, for this word that you've given us, that you are a God who sees our brokenness and doesn't shy away from it. Um, but fixes it in Christ. God, you, when I look at, the, at, at your word, I just, I just see myself over and over and over and over again and think, why in the world would, would you be so patient, so merciful, so kind, so abounding in love that you would give me the things that I have and yet on top of that, redeem me? Oh God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that I can now come, that we can now come and stand in your presence as a son and daughter and and call you dad and ask you for things. God, would we celebrate that? Would that give us hope in our circumstances? And would that propel us into the world around us with boldness and courage to show others that that we, we serve a great king who loves them? Thank you, God. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.